<clears throat> All right, so for the last few months, all through the church, we, are, we have been going through this series. Oh, let me put my timer because I'm a Latino, so you know how that goes. <laughs> um, we have been preaching through this series based on the Sermon on the Mount, which is, we, you find it in Matthew chapter 5 all the way to Matthew chapter 7. And basically what it is, is this intense discipleship training that Jesus uh, gives his disciples and and, and the rest of us, right? And so it's basically Jesus, Jesus giving us the things that we need to know and the need to have in order for, in order for us to become people that bring, bring heaven to earth, basically. Uh, you got to remember that when Jesus is de- doing this teaching, he's about to send them, send his disciples into the world um, to live different, uh, to live by a different set of values with a different worldview, uh, and that's part of the reason why we called this series the Upside Down Kingdom. Um, so as I was preparing for this, and, and I heard uh, Will's sermon last week, and basically this is part number two, and I think that you mentioned it during the communion, all chapter seven, basically, after prayer, all chapter seven is, is the closure of the sermon, and it's basically it is, if you, don't, if you don't have chapter seven, it's impossible for you to live, to be able to live out the Sermon on the Mount. It's as important as that. Actually, without chapter 7, Matthew chapter 7, you are not a Christian. Uh, That's why the sermon last week was so important. So the sermon today is actually part 2 of the sermon from Will. And next week is part 3 of the same sermon, basically. All right? What is interesting, though, is that Jesus is talking about all these things. And then he pauses to tell us uh, two things that we got to keep in mind. We need to understand what a false prophet is. And I think that part of the reason why he's going to tell us that is because we need to learn uh, to discern who should we listen to. So we got to know who that false prophet is. We got to have a right definition of what a false disciple looks like. And I think that he's doing that. So we ask the question, are we true disciples? And number three, of course, because we are gospel-centered church, we got to find out how is it that we walk away from true uh, false prophets and how to become true disciples. Therefore, we need the true disciple that helps us become the true, the true prophet that helps us become the true disciple. All right, so three points. False prophets, false disciples, the true prophet that helps us become the true disciples. Amen? All right. Uh, true prophet. Um, so this section right here starts from verse 15 all the way to verse 20. And I would like to start with a question because it's actually kind of awkward that Jesus talks about false, disciples, false prophets right after he talks about everything else. So chapter 5, he says that we are blessed people because of so many different things, right? He calls us to be light and salt. He calls us to be faithful. He calls us to love our enemies. He calls us to be generous and not judgmental. He calls us to walk in communion with God. He tells us all these things. And then out of nowhere, he talks about false prophets. And I think that God, as always, is really intentional why he's saying the things that he's saying. And this is the premise, at least for me. The reason why Jesus is talking about false prophet in this context is because at the end of the day, we are not just the things we do, but we are what we think. Let me say that again. I think that the reason why Jesus is bringing this in this context is because at the end of the day, we are not just the things we do, we are the things we think. I think that the Bible, 
and you find this all through Scripture, always makes this connection between mind, heart, and behavior. All the time. God never just appeals to your mind or just appeals to your heart and even less calls you to do something in isolation. He always deals with your mind. He always deals with your heart because when he's dealing with your mind and your heart, that dictates the way you behave. So what Jesus is doing here is appealing to our minds so it affects our hearts, so it affects our behavior. That's why Christianity is a thinking, quote-unquote, religion. It's a thinking religion. Now, listen, I'm Hispanic, so I'm all into emotions, man. No issues whatsoever with emotions. I love emotions. I love experiences. When I worship, I want to feel something. I don't want to just hear something. I want to feel something, which I think is part of the reason why we also do communion. We got to feel and taste and see that the Lord is good. But all of my emotions and all of my feelings and everything else I go through and experience must submit to what I think because what I think dictates what I have in my heart and because of what I have in my heart dictates the way I live. Ideas has consequences. Ideas has consequences. And that's the reason why Jesus in verse 15 says, Watch out for false prophets. Watch out for false prophets. Be careful with their teachings. That's my word, right? Be careful with their teachings. And he says, because they look like sheep, you know. They're innocent. They're nice. They're harmless. They're vulnerable. They're likable, charismatic, appealing, and eloquent. But inwardly, they don't care about people. But inwardly, they're not interested in teaching, they're not interested in teaching you what you need. They're not interested in your well-being. Inwardly is a different issue. As a matter of fact, I would say that the problem with false prophets is that not only they're destructive, because that's what the, what the word ferocious there means, but that he want, they want something from you. Because that's the second definition of the word ferocious there. Not only what they teach is destructive, but they're aggressively greedy, the word says in the original. In other words, everything they say is in exchange of something from you. It's never because of you. And I wish many of us would believe that. Because we would, be, we would stop listening to so many dumb people. Right? I'm not saying will. I'm agreeing with him. <laughs> Come on, people. So this is the question. If, if being ministered by false prophets is so dangerous, how do we recognize who's a false prophet? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because Jesus answers the question in verse 16. He says, you got to look at their fruit. By their fruit, you will recognize them. And he repeats the same thing in verse 20. By their fruit, you will recognize them. And then he gives us this beautiful argument in verses 17 and 18. He says, you got to pay attention to the fruit because it's impossible for a good tree to have a bad fruit and for a bad tree to have good fruit. Therefore, pay attention to the fruit. 
That's how you recognize who a false prophet is. But we have a problem, though. How do you know what the word fruit means? Because you and I could have different definitions of what the fruit means. Maybe your definition of the word fruit is someone innocent, nice, harmless, vulnerable, likable, charismatic, appealing, and eloquent. Which is usually how people translate the word fruit. But that's not what Jesus means. Actually, every time Jesus uses the word fruit in any of the four Gospels, he uses it in the same way. It's a way to describe the character or the lifestyle of a person, number one. Or two, a way to describe their teachings. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you want to recognize what a false prophet looks like, pay attention to both their lifestyle, their character, and their teaching. And the reason is so simple. Because their character shows you what they believe, and their character shows you what they love. And their teaching shows you what they believe, and their teaching shows you what they love. So here's the, here's the thing. When I was, you were giving testimony as a pastor, and he's giving the joke that we didn't know about Will when we hired him and stuff like that. We didn't. But this we, this we knew. We kind of knew about his character. And this is the reason how I knew about his character. Um, this is the thing. So Timothy, for example, requires that when, when you're going to hire a pastor or you're going to have a pastor, you gotta have, you got to check three things. It's really interesting. Number one, you got to make sure that the person is not a new believer. So I, I think we messed up there with you, right? Um, <laughs> part of the idea is because with age and time in ministry and in life and stuff like that, you mature, right? And you develop discernment and all that stuff, right? Uh, so you got to pay attention to that. Right? Number two, this is crazy because none of the requirements says check the doctrine yet. Or check their teaching skills. That comes later. So first, you got to see um, if they're a new believer. Second, you have to check their family relationships. Which is the first thing we did when we hired Will. Right? So my wife and some of the other pastor's wife... Took a good two hours with, with, with Lily because we wanted to hear from Lily who Will was. Because there's something about your internal life that says something about your heart. But he doesn't stop there. Paul doesn't stop there in Timothy because the third requirement is this. He's got to have a good testimony with his neighbors. With people outside the church. Isn't that crazy? So it's not so much about the talents or even the way they teach or preach. It's about who they are when nobody else sees. So if you want to identify what a false prophet looks like, you must look into their lifestyle. You must look into the character, which is something that as a nation we struggle so much with. Because we go with the experience, we go with the sensation, we go with our feelings, we look, we go with how eloquent a person is, how success, successful a person is, how big the church is, how many podcasts the people have, or people have. But that's, that's not how you identify a false prophet. Here's one more. You identify a false prophet 
by how they suffer. Because when you suffer, whatever you have inside comes out. So when I was a youth pastor, uh, when Will was a youth pastor for me, I, I told him to do something that I did as a youth pastor, which is this thing that we call the survival camp, right? Now, Will is anti-nature, anti-everything. It has to do with excitement, right? So he never wanted to embrace that. But I remember, so, so basically what it was, I took like 20, 30 of my students and I took him to the jungle, you know, whatever we call jungle here in, in Illinois, right? But I took him to the jungle and we lived there for five days. Um, and you were supposed to cook your own food and you have limited amount of water that you could drink a day, right? And you built your own tent out of things that we will give him, right? Uh, you do all that stuff. And I remember that at the beginning of the camp, you would choose the people that would say, man, this is a leader. So I picked all of my leaders, youth leaders at that time. And in the midst of suffering, because they do suffer, and in the midst of struggle, and in the midst of all of this, I realized that the leaders I thought I had were no leaders. Because they were extremely egocentric and selfish. They didn't know how to suffer for somebody or with somebody. They were just trying to survive themselves and the heck with everybody else. See, a false prophet claims to believe and love his or her neighbor. But when he or she sees his neighbor suffering, he or she doesn't do anything. A false prophet claims to trust God, but works like, but work like if there's no tomorrow. He doesn't know how to stop. He doesn't know how to rest. That's a false prophet. A false prophet claims to trust God in everything. But it is a person that is extremely impatient. And he thinks or she thinks that everything is supposed to go his or her way. That's a false prophet. A false prophet is a person that believes that God is powerful. That he's in control of everything. That he changes things and he changes people. And yet this person is not a person of prayer. That's a false prophet. Or it's a person that insists in trying to change people. Like if we can't do that, that's a false prophet. A false prophet is a person that, that says something and lives something completely different. Because it's not just about the things we teach or they teach. It's how we live. Because our life reflects what we truly believe and what we truly love. The second thing has to do with the teaching. And I think that's, this one is easier. If they're teaching goes against what the scripture says. So let me quote uh, Lloyd-Jones here because I think that he, he explains it really well when, when we say what we just said. This is what he says. A false teacher does not like doctrinal preaching. You know, that is not, is not exposing the truths of the Bible. It is always so vague. The false prophet very rarely tells you anything about the holiness, the righteousness, the justice, and the wrath of God. He always preaches about the love of God, but those other things he does not mention. He never makes anyone tremble as he thinks of his holy and impressive being. In other words, a false prophet would always make you feel good. Period. D.A. Carson calls that cheap grace, which is he's borrowing the sentence from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. But he says, the false prophet is the one that uh, preaches forgiveness without repentance, church membership without rigorous church discipline, 
Discipleship without obedience, blessing without persecution. I love that sentence. I, need, I think we need to memorize that today. The Christian life is a life of blessings with persecution. Joy without righteousness results without obedience. Modern day Christians, a modern day example, that will be the prosperity gospel movement. And I'm assuming that many of you guys are familiar with that. But it's this idea. Uh, now, because I'm a Latino and I have a lot of relationships with people in Latin America, I see how dangerous this thing is. It's dangerous here in the United States, but it's even more dangerous in Latin America. The largest churches in, in South America are uh, prosperity gospel churches. Guatemala, which is the place where my wife is from, has 80% Christians, supposedly. But the levels of uh, criminality are super high. And they have three of the largest churches in South America. In Central and South America. So they tell you that if you are blessed, it's because you are financially stable and you have a lot of things. You know what's ironic about that? That Jesus didn't have a lot of things. And his disciples, many of them, many of them were just broke. They tell you that suffering is not part of the equation. You're not supposed to suffer, they say. You know what's ironic? That Jesus died on a cross. And the rest of the disciples suffered. The church has always suffered. They tell you that the reason why you should give is because God is going to give you more. You know what's ironic about that? That Jesus gave it all and never got anything in return. He died. They tell you, and I think that this is one of the, mo the, the one that kills me the most, is that if things go wrong in your life, it's because you have some, something wrong with you. What's ironic about that is that the most holy person we have ever known, Jesus, died in a cross. You've got to learn how to recognize the false prophets. Watch out for the false prophets. Because we are not just the things we do. We are what we think. And what we think affects our hearts. And what affects our hearts affects the way we live. How about if I tell you that knowing what a false prophet is, is not enough? Because you need to know what a true prophet looks like. So, for example, when they're training someone to learn how to recognize a false bill, and I think you used this in one of your sermons before, is they don't show you all these pictures of what a false bill looks like. They do that at the end. What they do first is they have you spend hours and hours and hours and hours and hours looking at a true bill until you are so familiar with it that understanding or recognizing a false bill comes natural to you. You know what the problem is with modern-day Christianity? We have walked away from the knowledge of what Christianity is. That's the main problem. Because we are a celebrity culture people. We follow celebrity pastors. We listen to celebrity things. But we don't know the Bible. 
That's the problem. We don't know the Bible. Listen, I think that the Lord has given you an amazing pastor. And I'm not saying it just because he said all those nice things about me. <laughs> that they were true. <laughs> Let me take back what I said at the beginning. <laughs> Seriously, I think that will is exceptional. It's the Lord's doing. It's God's grace. So I don't think that it's all you. Because it's not. But if your spiritual walk is because you listen to him, that won't be enough. Listening to a preacher does not replace personal devotion. You need to know your Bible. You need to know your Bible. Otherwise, you are not going to be able to recognize who is a false prophet. You know, one of the most frustrating things for me as a pastor, and I, and I think that um, many of you that have walked with the Lord probably experienced before, is, is that I realize that a lot of people that pastor, they actually don't know the distinctions between other things I preach and what other people preach. Uh, do you do uh, name dropping here for other pastors? Yeah? All right, so... So, for example, I think that Joel Austin is a pretty look, good-looking guy. I think he's got an amazing church. Big, that's what I mean. Right? Like 20,000 people, 30,000 people. I think it's the fastest-growing church in the United States right now. And I get people listening to my sermons and listening to his sermons and saying, wow, you guys preach the same thing. And everything, everything inside of me is saying, what the heck are you talking about? Because I think that we have created a culture in which we just absorb without knowing what Scripture says. You ought to be Bible people. Bible people. Now, Jesus doesn't stop there because he talks about false preachers and then he's going to talk about false disciples. And I think that there's a connection between these two things. There's a reason why they come together. And I think that the reason why Jesus brings false disciples after false preachers is because false disciples are the product of false preachers. So if you believe all the junk that people say, by default, you become a false disciple. And a false disciple has the same issue that the false prophet have or has. It's an inward problem. It's a heart issue. You could do everything you do. You could do everything right, and I'm going, to show you, I'm going to show it to you in a second, which is this section of Scripture is one of the most scariest uh, sections of Scriptures to me. And I'll show you why in a second, right? But the problem of the false disciple is that they do everything right, and they think that they know God, but they don't. That's the problem. So from verses 21 to 22, once again, one of the most scariest passages in the Bible, in my opinion, he describes this false disciple, not because this person is phony, but because he's a person that thinks that knows Jesus, but doesn't. I think that the most loving thing, the most loving thing I could do for you today is to ask you to ask yourself if you are a false disciple. 
Look at how Jesus describes the false disciple. He tells us first in verse 21 that this person calls Jesus Lord, Lord. Now, every time the Bible uses the repetition of the same word twice, it's, for, um, it's, it's, it's kind of the same way we use an, excla an exclamation point. It's to put emphasis. So in a way, he's describing a person that, that thinks that uh, has an experience with Jesus. That it's a person that thinks that feels Jesus. It's a person that feels that Jesus is the most, the best thing ever. And yet he says, that might be a false disciple. The second thing that you could get from the same verse and actually the same word is the word Lord. Which in the original is the word kurios, which appears uh, 718 times in the New Testament. So it's an important word. It's the same word that we use in the Old Testament to describe God as Yahweh, which is the most personal name you could use when you describe God. So here we have a person that claims to believe in God, that thinks that they really know God, that they have a relationship with God. So not only they feel God, they experience God, but they're completely sure that they have a relationship with God. And yet, this might be a false disciple. And the third thing that we see there, which to me is the most, is the craziest of all, is that this person does crazy things in the name of God, verse 22. And it actually tells us what, it, what that means. The word, when you do something in the name of somebody, you're doing it as a representative of that person or with the authority of that person. And it tells us that this person prophesies, meaning teaches the God's word. It tells you that this person drive out demons. That would be a great person to have in church. It tells you that this person performs miracles. Supernatural abilities, if you will. This is the kind of people that if they come to Tri Village, we will put them in leadership today. Passionate, eloquent, drive out demons, perform miracles. This person will replace any of you guys today. The problem is their heart. Because it is possible to do everything right and your heart to be crooked. It is possible to do everything right and your heart to be crooked. How do you know if your heart and my heart is crooked? Well, it all comes down to this. If we are willing to surrender our will. Look at what it says, verse 21. Not everyone says to me, Lord, Lord, feeling, emotion, experience, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But, one, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Isn't that frightening? If the attitude of your heart is not to submit to the will of God, you are a false disciple. That's crazy. It is possible, once again, to do everything right. To teach things right. To do crazy things in the name of the Lord. But if you're not willing to surrender your will to Him, 
you might be a false disciple. The perfect example of, that we have of this in the Bible is Judas, right? Flawless guy, man. You read the Gospels, you never see any of the disciples looking at him weird, uh, talking about Judas. Did you see what he did? Nothing. We know stuff about Judas because the Bible tells us, but none of the disciples knew any of this stuff. And if you remember, at supper, last communi communion, they're sitting together, right? And Jesus says, one of you will betray me, right? And the crazy thing is that everyone is asking, is it me, Lord? I mean, if Judas was so bad, everyone would have said, well, I know it's going to be that guy. <laughs> no one said that. Actually, you know what's even more crazy? Jesus gives him the bread, and I'll come back to that later on, gives him the bread and says something, paraphrasing, what you're going to do, just do it now. And nobody else said anything. You know why? And I'm picking this from Tim Keller. Actually, everything I say I pick from him, but... He says that the reason why nobody said anything is because nobody even thought that he could be that guy. Isn't that crazy? He did everything right, and yet he had a crooked heart all along because he was not willing to submit his will to the will of God. Listen to D.A. Carson again. A couple of quotes here. What then, is what then is the essential characteristic of a true believer? Is it not loud profession? Oh, it is not loud profession, nor spectacular spiritual triumphs, nor declarations of great spiritual experience. Rather, his chief characteristic is obedience. The Father's will is not simply admired, discussed in life groups, Praised and church, debated, it is done. It is not theologically analyzed, nor congratulated for its highest ethical tones, it is done. At the end of the day, what makes the difference between a false disciple and a true disciple is obedience. Obedience. John Stott. The question is not whether we say nice, polite, orthodox, enthusiastic things to or about Jesus, nor whether we hear his words listening, studying, pondering, and memorizing until our minds are stuffed with his teachings, but whether we do what we say and do what we know. In other words, whether the lordship of Jesus, which we profess, is one of our life's major realities. It all comes down to obedience. It all comes down to you and I submitting our will to him. I think that we all struggle with this, you know. There's a tendency in many of us of having this kind of a selective obedience. And I get this from this um, uh, professor of theology in uh, Covenant Theological Seminary, uh, Daniel Doriani. And he says that we all struggle with, with what, what he calls selective obedience. You know, we obey the parts of the Bible that we like, and the parts of the Bible we don't like, we just don't obey. And his argument is really simple. If you don't obey everything that the Bible says, you are not obedient. This is what he says. If we truly confess that Jesus is Lord, we must also be willing to bend our will to his. 
even if his directives seem unpleasant or foolish to us. The test of loyalty, the test of our submission to the Lord, comes when his, when his will crosses our will. We truly obey or we submit to God whenever we obey a command that requires painful or strange actions. And then he gives us this crazy assessment. He says, next time you open your Bible, see if you are obeying the verses that you don't underline. That's a good assessment, isn't it? Go check if you are obedient in those verses that you never underline. There was a poem written a long time ago by Wilford, R- Wilbur Rees. You probably heard about this one. He's, it's called $3 Worth of God. Ever heard of that? This is what he says. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of God to make me love a black man or pick beats with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. (laughs) I want warmth of the womb, not the new birth. I want a pound of eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. I think that's true for many of us. I think that's true for many of us. It is possible to do everything right. It is possible to teach the right thing. It is possible to come to church and do crazy things in the name of God and yet be a false disciple. And it's even more crazy that Jesus says that the false prophet deserves the fire of God in verse 19 and that the false disciple is an evildoer and Jesus walks away from him. You know what's even more, more, more crazy? That you and I are both false prophets and false disciples. Don't you think it's true? Let me just ask you a few questions, okay? To see if it's true. Is your life 100% consistent with the things you preach or teach? Maybe you are a false prophet and a False disciple. Is your life in public the same as your life in private? Is everything you live in accordance with the scripture? Do you surrender your will to God, even if it's painful? Do you practice selective obedience? Do you want more of God? Do you want more of what God can give you than God himself? See, I I, I think that this is an issue. I see myself as a false prophet. Not because I'm teaching something against the scripture, but because my life is not consistent all the time. Can you say to God, I give up my independence? Show me what the will of the Lord is, and I will do it. Can you say, I don't care how I feel. I don't care what my friends say. I don't care what popular opinion is. I don't care what the experts say. I want to give up my independence. Can you say that? See, this is the issue. 
verse 19, it talks about judgment day and the wrath of God. And verse 23, it talks about judgment day and the wrath of God. That verse is for you and for me. We deserve the fire of God. We deserve for Jesus to walk away from us because we are all evildoers. So it doesn't matter if you walk, you walk with Jesus for years and years here. And it doesn't matter if this is the first time you hear that, that you come to church and exploring Christianity. That it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, we are all in the same boat. Amen. Let's pray. That would be a really messed up message. <laughs> we need more than that. There's got to be a way out. Oh, that's the true prophet, point three, that helps us become the true disciples. See, Jesus has a problem here, you know? When he's preaching this sermon, he has a problem here. And this is the problem. Jesus cannot just forgive you and forgive me just because. Because if Jesus forgives you and forgive me just because, he's going against this very thing that he said. And if Jesus goes against the very thing that he said, he becomes a liar. And if he becomes a liar, he stops being holy. And if he stops being holy, he stops being God. He can just forgive you. There's got to be something else. The second problem that Jesus has here, problem, is that he knows that if he just tells you how you get better, it's not going to be enough. Because the problem is from inside out. Therefore, he's got to find a way not only to fulfill the law and to change your heart at the same time. So this is what he does. Number one, he lives the life that none of us have lived. Completely obedient. His private life was perfect. His public life was perfect. That's why the Bible says that there was no sin found in him. That's what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 5, that he learned obedience. That's why we find him praying in Gethsemane, Father, if it is possible, let this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as your will. You know why he does that? So he could be the perfect representative taking the punishment we deserve. So it is Jesus going to the cross to take the fire you and I deserve. He is fulfilling the law. He is living what God requires, and he is fulfilling the law. He's taking, it, taking the punishment you and I deserve. He is the holy one taking the place of the evildoers. He's the righteous one absorbing the wrath of the false prophet. He's the obedient one surrendering the will for the sake of the false disciple, you and me. And in one prayer at Gethsemane, he shows us both. He surrendered his will. And he took the wrath. Both at the same time. It is only the people that embrace that and believe that. That could actually go to God and say, I give up my independence. It is only the people that believe in the gospel. That could say, show me what the will of God is and I will do it. It is only the people that believe this that could say, I don't care how I, how I feel. I don't care what my friends say. I don't care what the popular opinion is. I don't care what experts say. I give up my opinion. You know why? Because we have a Savior that submitted His will to the Father. 
The only reason why we do this is because we have a Savior that died in the place of the evildoer. It is only when you have this freedom. So let me finish with this. Sorry. <laughs> Jesus had two disciples that were false disciples. Peter and Judas. I mean, the rest were false disciples, but these are the ones that we know about. It's interesting because they, they both messed up really bad. Peter denied Jesus, and Judas sold them. This is the difference, though. Well, actually, and both of them received the same blessing, the same grace from Jesus. You remember after resurrection, Jesus comes to Peter and asks those questions, do you love me, and stuff like that. He calls him to ministry, and, and, uh, and Peter embraced the grace of Jesus in such a way that he, li he li lived out to be a man that will be crucified upside down because he responded to the grace of God. Judas, on the other hand, has the same opportunity. You know, when Jesus gives him the bread, it's almost like saying, I know what you're doing, but I want you. You know, when you extend food to somebody, at least in that culture, it's a welcoming thing. It's saying, I care for you. I love you. But Judas couldn't take it. See, it's all about you, how you embrace the grace of God. Either you truly believe who Jesus is and what he did for you, and that changes you, or you reject the grace of God. Only two options. The question is, which one are you going to be? Which one are you going to be? At the end of the service, you know, Will is going to be around, Chad is going to be around, any of us is going to be around. If, if you feel that you are a false disciple or a false prophet, this is the best place to be because we all are, which is being forgiven and now transformed by the power of the gospel. Amen?